We live in a sound-saturated society. We drive down the road to the sound of the radio. We go into our houses and we turn on the television just to have some sound. Our phones, our computers, our children, they're all sound manufacturers. Everywhere we look, every place we turn, there is sound. Sometimes we like to seek pockets of silence. But most of us do not like sustained silence. Sustained silence makes us feel awkward in a conversation, in a relationship, in an experience where there's sustained silence, everybody gets uncomfortable. And if that's true in the relationships that you enjoy and endure, then it must also be true in your relationship with God. You don't like for God to impose a sanctified, silent treatment upon you. You don't like a godly gag order. You don't like it when God is silent. You want to speak to him and you expect him to speak back to you. You like the God of sound, but sometimes it's difficult to handle the God of silence. Today we continue our summer sermon series entitled Preaching Christ. That regardless of text or topic, the only way for the Bible and dare I say life to come into focus is for us to see it through the lens of Christ and him crucified. It is only through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ that every topic and every text of scripture makes sense. It's only through the lens of Christ and him crucified that we can understand who we are and why we exist. And so this morning, we're gonna tackle the topic of preaching Christ in the Psalms. And today, I want you to draw your sword and turn to Psalm 77. I want to speak to you a message that's entitled, Meditating on the Messiah. Meditating on the Messiah. It comes from Psalm 77. I want to read it in its entirety. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 77, allow me to begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 20. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. Yet my heart mused and my spirit inquired, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? 
You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The book of Psalms is comprised of five books. The Talmud reads that as Moses gave five books to Israel called the Pentateuch, so David gave five books of praise called the Psalms to Israel. David is attributed as the author of the Psalms. And yet while he penned many of them, he did not write all of them. The truth of the matter is that David authored too shy of half. He authored 73 out of 150. That's a lot, but that's not all. He is uh, the number one go-getter for the Psalms, though. The next person uh, that authored the majority of the Psalms is a guy by the name of Asaph. He wrote 12 of them. In fact, the Psalm that I just read for you is one penned by Asaph. Many of Asaph's psalms are found in a collection between Psalm 73 and Psalm 83. Psalm 77 is lifted right out of the middle of that. The psalm that I read in your hearing is what's called a lament. Not all the psalms are laments, but many of them are. A lament is an individual or a nation who cries out to God requesting that God recognize their demise and deliver them from it. It's a person, it's the nation of Israel, it's a group of individuals, and they call out to God saying, please God, help me, please recognize who I am, how I am, and where I am, and will you please come and fix up, the problem has left me messed up. I just lament to you, I cry out to you. The psalm I read in your hearing is a lament. Ironically, it comes from Asaph. If you know anything about Asaph, you understand that he is the musician to Israel. He is the George Beverly Shea. He is the Chris Tomlin. He's the Toby Mac of Israel. He's the one who, when the people come to worship, he strikes up the band and he leads the choir. He is the lead worshiper. He is one of the ministers of the gospel. He is one of the uh, proclaimers of truth. He is the worship leader. Now you would think that if anybody's got it all together, it's got to be the pastors. If anybody has it all together, it's got to be the ministers of God. But yet can I tell you that is nothing further from the truth because there are many times that many ministers are just as messed up as the people in the pew. All of us have times When we have the dark night of the soul, in despair, in grief, in agony, in confusion. And in our particular psalm, Asaph says not once but twice in the opening verse, I cried out to the Lord. 
That word cried means to call. It means to shout. This is not Asaph just praying his bedtime prayers. This is Asaph sobbing. He is shouting. He is crying out to the Lord. He says that he is in despair. When I was in despair, I sought the Lord. He doesn't tell us why he's in despair. He doesn't tell us what caused this depression in his life. We don't know why he's suffering under this dark cloud that seems to be hovering over his life and ministry. We don't know why he's in distress. We just know he's distressed. Oh, maybe, maybe he's depressed because he fears that the Philistines are going to come and attack Israel again. Maybe he is suffering because of a momentary downturn in the economy and some of his close friends are now unemployed. Maybe he is uh, in deep, dark depression because a natural catastrophe rumbled through his neck of the woods. Maybe he is grieving, maybe he's upset, maybe he's overwhelmed with sorrow simply because of a bad report from the doctor. Perhaps he is in despair because of personal sin that so easily has entangled him. He doesn't tell us why he's in despair. He just says that he's experiencing the dark night of the soul. You know uh, the demonstration of that. You know the manifestation of that. Because he says, I lifted up untiring hands. He was relentless in his prayers to God, but it seemed as if God was giving a sovereign silent treatment. It seemed as if there was a a godly gag order that Asaph would pray and God would say nothing. Asaph would seek the Lord and God would do nothing. It would seem that he was having unrelenting, untiring hands lifting up to the Lord. But then he goes on to say, I couldn't even put two sentences together. I was too troubled to speak. You ever been like that? I was too troubled to speak. I didn't even know what to say when I went to God in prayer. I mused and I moaned and I groaned and I mumbled, Asaph implies. Asaph also says that this kept him up at night. He lost sleep over this, whatever this may be. It's something that caused him to lose sleep for he says of the Lord, you did not close my eyes. You didn't allow me to sleep. You kept me up all through the watches of the night and I churned and I turned and I wrestled and and I didn't know what was going to happen. And maybe some of you understand exactly the way Asaph feels. Maybe you know what it is to lose sleep over a problem or a worry or despair or depression. Maybe you know what it is to get that bad report or be released from a job. Maybe you know what it is to suffer a health crisis. Maybe you know what it is to have a marriage in demise. Maybe you know what it is to have a personal sin that so easily entangles. Maybe you understand what it is that when you go to God, you can't even put two words together. You just mumble and groan and moan all your way through. Maybe you know exactly the way Asaph feels. Asaph is experiencing the dark night of the soul. And it gets worse. Because he says, I tried to remember the music of the night. He had taught people and told people that whenever you're in despair, all you got to do is sing your way to sanity. Just have a song, a go-to. Have something that can lift your spirits. Asaph said, I tried that and it didn't work. Friend, you know it's bad. 
when the musician cannot be helped by his music. You know that it's bad when what usually lifts your spirit no longer works. You know that it's bad, tough and rough when what you usually go to does not bring any satisfaction. You know it's bad when the artist cannot be uplifted by his art. You know it's bad when the painter cannot be satisfied by her paintings. You know that it's bad when the golfer no longer has fun playing golf. You know that it's bad when the preacher can no longer preach. You know that it's bad when the musician no longer finds Comfort from his own music. This depression, this darkness, this despair was driving Asaph lower and lower. And maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe you know what it is to do your best to try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, only to discover that it's of no use. The more you try, the worse it seems to get. Oh, it gets worse, my friend. You get to verses 7, 8, and 9, and Asaph levels against God six questions of criticism. They are biting. They are vicious. They are vile attacks of the very character of God. Did you hear them? Asaph didn't just think this, but he verbalized this, beginning in verse 7. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never Show favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten how to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Friend, you hear those six questions and the resounding answer to all of them ought to be no. No, God has has not forgotten how to be merciful. He's not going to reject forever. He has not forgotten how to show favor or to give unfailing love. God is not an absent-minded professor who's forgotten his promises and God will not withhold uh, or administer anger and withhold compassion. The answer to all six of these questions is a resounding no, but you don't find any answer in the text, do you? All you find are the questions. These are questions, these are gut-wrenching questions that Asaph levels against God and his character and his holiness. What Asaph needed to remember is what the late, great Warren Wiersbe taught us and told us. You ought to never doubt in the darkness what you've been taught in the light. Don't doubt in the darkness what God has taught you in the light the darkness will tempt you into believing that God doesn't love you oh but you've been taught in the light that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life darkness will tempt you into believing that God doesn't listen to your prayers That you, Christian, are wasting your time praying unto the Lord. That's what darkness will try to tempt you into believing. Oh, but you've been taught in the marvelous light of the Lord that God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. In the dark night of the soul, you'll be tempted to believe that God cannot forgive you for that sin. 
The sin that you committed is far too gross, far too numerous. There's no way that God can forgive you. But you have been taught in the marvelous light of the Lord that as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has removed our transgressions from us. The dark night of the soul will try to teach you that what you've done will sever your relationship with God. But you've been taught in the light that therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Don't ever doubt in the darkness what you've been taught in the marvelous light of the Lord. That's what Asaph needed to do. That's what Asaph eventually does. That's what you and I have to do when we are struggling in deep dark despair and we're in agony and we are experiencing the things that Asaph is enduring and experiencing here in Psalm 77. The entire psalm hinges, swivels, Verses 10, 11, and 12. It is so powerful. It is so dramatic that I want you to see what flows from it in verses 13 to 20. And then I want us to revisit that hinge portion of verses 10, 11, and 12. If you look at verses 13 and following, what Asaph then declares is your ways, O God, are holy and you are great. Wait a minute. Time out. You just question the very character of God saying has God rejected me forever has he forgotten his promises has he forgotten how to be merciful is God no longer going to be loving and compassionate towards me I mean you are just criticizing and you are critiquing the very character of God and then all of a sudden in verse 13 then you say God is good and God is great what gives are you are you afflicted are you weird are you messed up Asaph what's going on are you schizophrenic what's happening here because in in the first part of the passage you're one way and then 13 and following you say how great God is you say how good he is and how great he is he is holy and then Asaph remembers that God performs miracles verse 15 with your mighty arm you redeemed your people Verse 16, the waters saw you and writhed. Verse 17, the clouds poured down water. The skies resounded with thunder. Your arrows like lightning flashed across the sky. Verse 19, your path led them through the sea. Even though you could not be visible, your footprints were not seen, yet you were right there with them. In verse 20, Asaph concludes, you are a great shepherd. For you shepherd your people like a flock. And you did it through the hands of Moses and Aaron. If you uh, look at this psalm, it, it's two ends of the spectrum. In the first nine verses of Psalm 77... There are 18 references to I or me. In the last eight verses of Psalm 77, there are 21 references to God. In the first nine verses, it would appear that God is absent. 
In the last eight verses, Asaph will say God is awesome. In the first nine verses, it looks like God is missing. In the last eight verses, it appears that God is merciful. The first nine verses, uh, Asaph focuses on himself. The last eight verses, he focuses on the Savior. This is a tale of two extremes. I mean, the first half is one way. The second half is another way. And the only way it makes sense, the only way it comes into the focus is to see the hinge of the psalm verses 10 11 and 12 so if you look at verse 10 he says then i thought to this i will appeal the years of the right hand of the most high verse 11 i will remember the deeds of the lord yes i will remember your miracles of long ago verse 12 i will meditate on all your works i will consider all your mighty deeds listen my friends in any language The power is found in the verbs. That's true in Hebrew. It's true in Greek. It's true in English. It's true in any language. That the power of the language is found in the verbs. Listen to the verbs in the hinge section of this psalm. Verses 10, 11, and 12. In verse 11, he says, I will remember. Verse 12, I will meditate. Also verse 12, I will consider. He says, I will remember I will meditate, I will consider. I will remember, I will meditate, I will consider. I will remember, I will meditate, I will consider. All three of these words are are synonyms. They're they're pretty similar to each other. They mean to, to, to think about, to consider, to mull over, to ponder, to dwell upon. This requires intentional effort. He says that I will remember. It's not that he's just gonna recall the deeds of God he will remember the deeds of God it's not just he's going to meander through the scripture he's going to meditate on the scripture it's not that he's going to coast through his circumstance he's going to consider what is God doing in my circumstance this requires intentional effort like the apostle Paul will say uh, in, in his New Testament letter we ought to take captive every thought and subject it to the obedience of Christ What Asaph is doing is he is correcting his stinking thinking. What Asaph is doing is he's doing a checkup from the neck up. What Asaph is doing is that he is subjecting himself to the authority of God in his life and he is remembering God. He is meditating upon God. He is considering the acts of God. In this moment of the hymn section of the the passage, he's not thinking about himself. He's not thinking about what he did. He's not thinking about all his accolades. He's not thinking about people who came up to him and said, boy, that was a great song. That was a great message. That was a great act of leadership. You did a great job. I'm so glad you're here as the leader of Israel. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his God. And it makes all the difference in the world. Asaph is intentionally, forcibly directing his thoughts upon the mighty deeds of God. And when he did that, then he could conclude, in spite of my circumstances, you are good. In spite of my situation, you are great. In spite of what I'm going through, you're still holy. You are the holy God. You are the good God. You are the great God, independent of what's going on around me in my life. This, my friend, makes all the difference. John Piper said it this way, that as a believer in Christ, You've got to fight for your delight. You've got to fight 
for delight. It doesn't just come naturally. You've got to fight for your thoughts. You've got to fight for your feelings. You've got to fight for your attitudes. And you've got to fight. And the way you fight, the, 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 the armor that you have been given, the, the weaponry that's at your disposal is that you remember, that you meditate, that you consider the mighty deeds of God. You think about who God is. You think about what Christ has done. You think about the rescue mission that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. You see this text the same way you see every text through the lens of the accomplished work of Christ on the cross and everything comes into focus. Because now your mind is elevated unto the Lord. You're thinking upon him. I realize what some of you may be thinking to yourself right now. Uh, Pastor, if you're telling me that the way I go from despair to delight is just by thinking about Jesus, you're going to give me something more than that. Because, Pastor, uh, that may work for some people, but if you knew the complexity of my circumstances, if you knew the depth of my trouble, if you knew the vicious, wicked web that has been woven in my life, you would understand you got to give me something more than just think on Jesus. You got to give me something more than just remember the mighty deeds of God. You got to give me something more than just to read the holy book and to meditate on the words and to mull over and to ponder and to consider. You got to give me something more than that. Because if that's all you have, pastor, you do not understand the complexity of my problem. Well, friend, I have to admit to you I don't know the complexity of your problem. And you, you might be right. You just might be right. But the very least, you have to agree with me that what I'm telling you worked for Asaph. And if it worked for Asaph, it just might work for you. If it worked for Asaph, it just might work for me. If it worked for Asaph, it just might work. Because here Asaph went from despair to delight simply by remembering, simply by meditating, simply by considering the deeds of God. And what flowed from it was the declaration that God is holy, he is great, for he has redeemed his people as I look at this psalm, as I look at my life, here's the takeaway. That in order for us to move forward in faith, we've got to look up in prayer and look back to the mighty deeds of God. Have you ever felt stuck? You're just kind of going through the motions. Just kind of stuck in your faith, stuck in your walk, stuck in your existence. You don't really know what the purpose is. You don't know why you're here. You don't know what you're doing. You're just kind of stuck. There seems to be this dark cloud hanging over your head. You seem depressed more times than you're filled with joy. And you're just kind of, just kind of stuck and you don't know what to do. Friend, when I feel that way, when I get in those predicaments and in those moments, the way I move forward in faith is by looking up in prayer and looking back to the mighty deeds of God. For let me just declare unto you this morning, isn't that what Asaph did? Isn't that what Asaph did? 
Three of y'all are agreeing with me. Isn't that what Asaph did? That's exactly what you see in this text. He looked up in prayer and he looked back, not to his deeds, but to the mighty deeds of God. And by looking back at the mighty deeds of God, it lifted him out of his miry pit and set his feet firmly on a rock. If it worked for Asaph, it just might work for you. If it worked for Asaph, it just might work for me. Oh, when I consider Christ, I remember how God liberated his children from Egyptian captivity. God led them out of Egypt where they had been enslaved for over 400 years. He took them to the Red Sea. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Red Sea in front of them. Pharaoh and his army behind them. And God breathed upon the water, separating the Red Sea so they could cross on dry ground. As soon as Pharaoh and the enemy and his army came in after them, then God collapsed the waters. And Pharaoh and the army perished right there in the Red Sea. And the Israelites were set free. And they were led into the promised land. Oh, my friend, when I I consider Christ... I remember how God in Jesus came on a rescue mission. For 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He was literally quite physically born in a barn. And this announcement of the proclamation that Jesus had arrived was not given to royalty but to rednecks. For it was declared not in the palace halls but in the pasture hills. It was to shepherds that the angels came and said, Do not be afraid, for unto uh, you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You will find this baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. This is good news for y'all. That's what the angel said. It's you, plural. It's y'all. This is good news for y'all, not just for you shepherds, but for anybody who will believe. Not just for rednecks, but for royalty. Not just for the young, but for the old. Not just for male, but for female. Not just for the slave, but also the free. Not just for the white man, but also for the black woman. It is for anybody and everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. This Jesus has come on a rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. My friend, when I experience the dark night of the soul, all I have to do is consider Christ. I consider as he came to earth on a rescue mission for you and for me. Oh, friend, when I, when I consider Christ, I remember how Jesus healed the sick. Jesus in his ministry of some three years constantly was Restoring sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, enabling the crippled to jump to their feet and walk out in plain view of everybody. I remember that as Jesus was making his way into the holy city of Jerusalem, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus. He was on the side of the road. He was just begging for alms. He was just asking for people to be be generous to the poor. And he said, as he heard that Jesus was making his way by, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. All of his friends said, don't bother the Savior. He's too busy for you. The other disciples came around and said, you need to pipe down. You just need to be quiet. But it caught the attention of Jesus. Because whenever anybody cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me, the mercy Messiah is always merciful it stopped him dead in his tracks Jesus came back kneeled down and said to the brother what do you want he said I just want to see and Jesus touched him and blind Bartimaeus became seeing Bartimaeus and he came and he followed Jesus into Jerusalem whenever I experience the dark night of the soul all I've got to do is consider Christ because Jesus healed the sick on another occasion Jesus went to the tomb of his best friend Lazarus he was four days late but he was right on time Mary and Martha said I wish you would have been here 
few days earlier, but even now we believe that Jesus will do, that you can do anything God tells you to do. Jesus goes to the tomb and orders for the stone to be rolled away. The author of life peers into death and says, Lazarus, come out. I'm glad he specified, aren't you? Because the author of life simply said, come out. All the dead in Christ would have began to jump out of the grave. But Lazarus came forth and Jesus said, unbind this man because he was dead. Now he's alive. Take off the grave clothes. My friend, when I get into the dark night of the soul, when I'm in despair, when I am grieving, all I've got to do is consider Christ. And I remember how Jesus came and healed the sick. And if he can heal those sick people, then maybe he can heal us sick people. When I consider Jesus, then my spirit is lifted. Y'all are clapping as if I'm done, but I'm not finished yet. (laughs) When I consider Christ, I remember how Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus lived a perfect life. And after a three-year public ministry, they handed him over to the Roman rulers to be crucified, executed. They whipped him beyond all human recognition. He was bruised and beaten for our iniquity. He was stretched on a cross beam. He stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem. He made his way up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha. There the Roman soldiers, they stretched his arms extremely wide. They raised him up very high into the air. And in that moment, Jesus was precariously dangling between two thieves, one on his left and the other on his right. These guys were insurrectionists. These guys were crooks. These guys were criminals. And one of those criminals in that moment said, please remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus, Jesus, the mighty, massive miracle worker from Nazareth, Jesus said, today, not tomorrow. Today, not next week. Today, not sometime. But today, you'll be with me in paradise. This has caused the hymn writer to say, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. My friend, whenever I consider Christ, I just recall how Jesus came on a rescue mission. He was dangling there on the cross and Jesus declared, it is finished to tell us die. Nobody took his life. He gave up his life. He bowed his head and gave up his ghost. When I remember Jesus, when I meditate on the Messiah, when I consider Christ, my spirit is lifted because Jesus came to seek and to save a crook like that. And Jesus came to seek and to save a criminal like me. And he also came to seek and to save criminals like you. I'm looking out and I see some sophisticated crooks. I'm looking out and I see some sanctified criminals. I see some individuals who are sinful at the core and yet the blood of Jesus Christ has covered over a multitude of your sins and just considering what Jesus has done ought to lift your spirits. But you know I can't leave him on the cross because when I consider Christ I'm also reminded that they took his body down. They placed him into a borrowed grave. And on the third day, the first day of the week, three days after crucifixion, Jesus got 
up. The dead man began to breathe again. The one who had no life gave life. The one who was dead as a doornail became alive both now and forevermore. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb with all power and victory and healing in his hands. And Jesus stepped forth and he crushed the serpent's head. Jesus stepped forth and he put death to death. Jesus stepped forth and he obliterated your sin and mine so that you and I bear no more sin. You and I bear no more condemnation because of our faith in Jesus Christ all of our iniquity was placed squarely upon Jesus and because Jesus died for us and because Jesus was raised from the dead we have the hope of resurrection so one day someday in the past or maybe it's today someday one day somebody shared with you that great gospel and in that moment you accepted it you believed you trusted you surrendered you just like Emory yesterday I was on the porch of Emory a citizen right here in Pelham and we were going through the plan of salvation I asked him are you a sinner? He said, yes. I said, do you want forgiveness of your sins? He said, yes. I said, do you want to surrender your life unto the Lord? He said, yes. Is there anything that's keeping you from doing it right now? He said, I don't think so. And I said, do you want to pray and just ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? And in that moment, Emory prayed and he accepted Christ and he woke up this morning as a son of God Almighty. Friend, all I'm telling you is that when you and I consider Christ, it has a way of lifting our spirits. When we consider him, when we remember his mighty deeds, when we meditate upon the Messiah, when we dwell and ponder the very word and works of God as recorded in holy sacred scripture, it does something to us. What it did to Asaph, it will do to you. I realize it sounds far too simplistic, in your situation, in your circumstance, that God can lift you out. But friend, if it worked for Asaph, it just might work for you. I came this morning to tell you that it did work for Asaph, and it does work for me, and I promise you, it'll work for you. This morning, I want you to walk out in full faith, Moving forward in faith because you're looking up in prayer. Looking back upon the mighty deeds of God. This morning, if you have to confess, you know, I've never really accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Today can be the day of your salvation. If you're here today and you say, I am a believer, but I'm stuck in despair I have the dark night of the soul more times than not in my week friend that's not how God intended for you to live so this morning you come you come consider Christ consider him who he is and what he's done in your life for you consider what he has done as recorded in the sacred book and I promise, I promise, you too can go from despair to delight. If you're here today and you're looking for a church home, you found one. We'd love for you to come join this faith family. Lock arms with us as we do our best to make a dent in the lostness in our world. 
and share the love of Christ with all we see. However, God wants you to respond. You do so in this moment. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, we pray that you have your way in our hearts and in our minds. We ask this because we know that you are a good God, great and holy. So in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.